Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. Thank you for tuning back. Uh, And if it's your first time here, this is the podcast that deals with uh, different experts from all over the world uh, discussing matters uh, related to international relations, uh, strategy, defense, economy, environment, and much, much more. Of course, it's a podcast that's produced for Strategy International, a global think tank and a consulting uh, firm uh, that uh, works around these issues all over the world, doing great things. Um, speaking of these experts, we have another great guest today with us, Dr. Robert Cutler. He is a fellow uh, at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He's also a senior fellow uh, and uh, the director for the Energy Security Program at the NATO Association of Canada. Of course, he's a specialist in energy security, geoeconomics, and uh, European and Eurasian affairs. He's worked all over the world in the private and public sectors, government institutions, and think tanks. Um, he's also taught and researched at the top universities all over the world again, including Canada, France, U.S., Switzerland, and Russia. Um, and, of course, lastly, he's a valued member of Strategy International as a senior consultant for um, uh, strategic negotiations, energy security, and geoeconomics, as well as the director of the Regional Strategic Affairs Program. That is one big introduction. Robert, how are you? Thank you for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank you for your good words. Yes, I'm doing very well. Thank you. And uh, I want to thank Strategy International for the opportunity to uh, share my ideas with everybody who's uh, tuning in. And uh, thank you for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure, and we're going to have a great conversation today. We haven't spoken too much about this on other episodes. We want to focus on energy, um, energy security, and there's a lot of things happening all over the world regarding um, this uh, issue, of course. Before we get on to that, let me just remind everyone that they can go on to strategyinternational.org for any information on Strategy International to find out exactly, uh, to get more information on what Strategy International is and the great work that is being done. Uh, and to also mention that very recently you participated on a webinar uh, specifically on energy security that uh, in, uh, Strategy International put together. So that, uh, if you, again, if anyone wants more information on that, you can find that on the website. Um Let's jump right into this because we're both in Canada. We're both in Quebec. When it comes to energy, we're not foreign to this. I mean, Quebec is a leader, especially in renewable energy. We've been following the news the last couple of months, and there's been uh, you know, some tumultuous events happening around energy. We're all following what's happening uh, on the other side of the, uh, of the globe, specifically in Europe. And there, there was an article that you wrote. Again, uh, anyone can find that on on strategyinternational.org, specifically to Canada's role in providing uh, or uh, you know occupying this leadership position in terms of supplying energy to its um, uh, to its partners all over the world. There was a recent visit by the German Chancellor here in Canada, uh, looking for. Uh, uh, alternate ways of securing energy into Europe because of specifically what's happening in uh, in Russia. Canada kind of closed that door uh, for natural gas, uh, telling Germany that, you know, we want to focus much more on green hydrogen. 
So we closed that door on a potential investor here in Canada and on a great partnership with Europe. Germany turned around, went to Mexico, secured their energy from that country. And not too long ago, there was a meeting again between uh, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister here in Canada, and the prime minister of Japan, again, with respect to natural gas, which again did not you know, bode well for, uh, for Canada as well. Why does Canada keep closing the door on, uh, on securing you know, energy deals from our country to you know the rest of uh, the world? Well, that's a, a very good question, and there are multiple reasons. Um, one of them uh, is that it takes too long. It has, in the past 10 years, taken too long for Canada to make decisions. It's a very um, onerous process. As you know, there's a division of responsibilities between the provinces and the federal and there are uh, legislatively mandated uh, consultations that must take place with various parts of civil society, not excluding First Nations. And uh, unfortunately, other actors, by which I mean buyers and sellers in the world, are able to get off their marks. Uh, Canada's almost still in the starting blocks. Uh, and the other matter that prevents Canada from taking uh, quick and decisive steps is that throughout the course of his prime ministership, uh, Mr. Trudeau has shown a certain absence of sympathy for uh, oil and gas in general, uh, and uh, his uh, ministers have placed obstacles that did not exist before. Uh, in front of the development of these resources. And other countries, other companies in the world, they're not going to wait for Canada. Mm -hmm. They can't wait for Canada. The meeting with the Japanese uh, there's uh, has been under construction for some time, uh, since you already covered the German angle. There's been an under construction some for some time, uh, an export facility for liquefied natural gas in British Columbia, which uh, also hasn't gotten off the mark uh, after five or more years. So it's a combination of institutional lethargy and a lack of leadership, or rather a leadership that disincentivizes uh, oil and gas production in favor of other forms of energy. We've also seen, just to mention to everyone, perhaps not everyone follows what's happening in Canada as closely as you are, uh, but I'd say for about maybe 10 years now, maybe more, there's been this huge battle also in Alberta, which is a Western province in Canada that is kind of landlocked, uh, that has huge oil reserves and they can't get that to market. There was, a, there was a deal that failed not too long ago about creating a pipeline to go to the Pacific Ocean through uh, British Columbia and another deal that uh, collapsed to bring the pipeline through Quebec uh, and to, to, to get up from the Atlantic Ocean. Both those solutions failed. Um, it just seems that we can't just get our, you know, get our ship in order over here. Well, yes, we may as well add to the mix to the two pipelines you mentioned, the the famed uh, XL pipeline to the U.S., mm -hmm. which uh, was uh, under dispute and controversial uh, way back uh, 
in uh, the, the Obama administration. The Obama. Mm -hmm. And uh, that also uh, didn't get built for other reasons, for other reasons. Uh, the oil uh, is still going to the United States, but it's going by rail, which is ecologically, you know, objectively, you look at the kinds of, you look at the accidents they have on rail versus the accidents they have via pipeline. And rail is that, and the effects on the environment and on human beings. And uh, per mile, uh, gallon, uh, rail is actually uh, less friendly to the environment and to human beings uh, than, uh, than a pipeline for oil. But uh, those are the politics. Uh, it's a big showpiece. Pipelines are always big showpieces. They're long and you can get your teeth into them and, you know, so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, there is the need in Canada for the provinces, which have actually more responsibilities and more rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal than do the states in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, for them to uh, agree and for them to agree within a framework that is uh, sort of okayed or checked off by the federal. Uh, so there's uh, a lot of parties and the, the, the sad thing is that many of the First Nation groups that are consulted say, we want the pipelines, we want the work, we want the jobs, it will give us economic development and a better lives for ourselves and our children. Uh, but that doesn't, win the, that doesn't win the game for some reason. Uh, other things uh, supervene to uh, prevent, other considerations supervene to prevent the pipelines. And as I said, it's a very complex mix of, of influences, but, uh, but there you have it. There, there, there's a huge debate in Canada, and I, I don't know if this is happening in other countries as well, specifically about the time it takes to move away from oil and gas and transitioning into cleaner energy. Um, do you feel like we've drank that Kool-Aid way too quickly and think that green energy is available now, right now, and we can actually, you know, transform everything we have to green technologies and exclude everything that, that has existed already thus far. What, what, in your opinion, is the right formula to kind of move from one to another or have both kind of coexist? I understand the whole, you know, the, the popular idea of going green, not only in Canada, but across the world. Uh, is that feasible, however, in Canada, when you have all these resources that the country can actually benefit from? Well, When one talks about the uh, the green energy, I can't speak to the question of whether Canada's gone too fast or too slow or whatever. What uh, I can do uh, is point to the example of Germany and other European countries, which certainly have uh, a 10-year, 15-year head start on Canada. Mm -hmm. And you can look at the newspapers and the front pages, and everybody knows the plain fact these days that it's not working for them. Germany is going back to coal uh, for various reasons uh, that we can go into later, if you like. Uh, nuclear energy, which is, you know, the cleanest, least expensive, uh, least ecologically harmful uh, version of energy of, that there is, uh, does uh, is 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 being excluded. And it it's worth mentioning also. <coughs> 
that when we talk about oil and gas and wind and solar and nuclear, uh, we're mainly talking about electricity generation. These these are our are, are primary uh, materials that are used to generate electricity. And very often in the newspapers, even among people who should know better and do know better, uh, there is a confusion made, uh, which confuses other people, uh, that electricity isn't all there is. In fact, if we take the example of Europe, for example, or any other uh, advanced industrial country like the US uh, or Canada, out of the total energy consumption of the country, only between, depending on the country, 20 to 24% of all energy consumed is generated for the purpose of electricity. Mm -hmm. So even if uh, snap your fingers and wave a magic wand, uh, electricity went 100% to green, that wouldn't solve any uh, supposed problems that uh, renewables are supposed to solve. Uh, and they're also much more expensive uh, than, uh, we can get into that later, than oil and gas. Uh, I just, you know, the, the example of Germany and, and the rest of Europe, which have had a 10 to 15 year head start on Canada, uh, offer some lessons that uh, any any cogent observer uh, should uh, make a note of are we taking note of that on this side of the ocean i think that the americans are taking a note of it canada uh it because canada works so slowly and digests so slowly and is hesitant sometimes like other countries may be to take lessons from third parties. I think that uh, the people who are concerned with energy in Canada uh, don't look at other countries as much as they might or as much as they should mm -hmm. in order to draw lessons from Canada. You know, uh, there are a lot of exceptional things about Canada, but there are also laws of physics, physics and economics that apply to everyone. Mm -hmm. I, I want to get back to that article that you wrote um, with the with Germany specifically seeking a partnership with Mexico. Uh, tell everyone why Mexico. Well, uh, Mexico because uh, they're ready. Uh, Mexico can take quick decisions. Germany uh, will invest on the Caribbean Sea coast of Mexico to help them to uh, construct. LNG, uh, first of all, liquefaction terminals to turn the gas into liquids, uh, and also with uh, tankers to transport it. And uh, the uh, Mexican government, uh, Pemex is a, is a state company, so Mexico doesn't have to uh, reconcile different interests of different provinces or states mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't have to uh, consult uh, first nations and other uh, components of civil society uh, they can uh, act more quickly and that's why it's happening in mexico 
And also they've been at it for a long time in Mexico. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's not something they have to learn. I want to get to Europe because obviously the conflict that we've all been following very closely uh, between Russia and Ukraine has caused numerous uh, 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 side effects. One particular, probably the biggest one particular, is the energy security in the rest of the European continent coming in from Russia. Um, How dependent is the EU to Russian gas? Well, about... In the middle of the teens, what was, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in the middle of the teens, uh, that is to say six years ago, seven years ago, uh, Europe was 25% dependent on Russian gas for imports. We're talking about as a proportion of imports. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, That grew actually to close to 40%. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there was a the whole Nord Stream saga. Uh, and uh, now, of course, there's there's none coming in. So that's the answer to your question: is that it was significantly dependent. You know, just to just to general to use a general you know adverb to answer your question, it was significantly dependent. I mean, we're seeing countries like France, uh, Germany, of course, kind of scrambling to find other uh, solutions. Uh, is this? something that could be achieved in the short term or is Europe for a long time or maybe in the medium term uh, looking at kind of hurting a little bit more with respect to its energy security? You put it very well. Europe is looking at hurting a bit more for its energy security in the medium term. And and please let me tell you why. Uh, the uh, people who are listening in may be interested also. Um, to, uh, to reach a deal with potential suppliers, Uh, the European Union and the European countries uh, don't seem to realize, which they ought to, that energy producers need to invest on a long-term basis. Long-term means 15 to 20 years or more. This is the only way for them to recover their original financial investments. And especially when there's an energy price cap, like Europe seeking to impose, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, um, it's the only way to and it's the only way to do it with a long-term contract you have a long-term investment you have a long-term contract purchase and sale contract of 15 to 20 years uh and if you don't do that uh then basically you're working on the energy spot market which means prices for oil and gas will be much higher okay now if we speak about long-term investment we have to ask why there isn't any Uh, This is because policies adopted by the European Union and its other member states and other states outside uh, have mandated uh, that oil and gas should be gone in 10 years. You know, energy transition, 2030, and all of that. Uh, There will be no more oil and gas if this transition is going to be 10 to 15 years after that. Well, these private companies, which do the investing, and they are private companies in the West, uh, even if they are state companies, they have uh, financial uh, responsibilities. These private companies have a fiduciary responsibility for their to their shareholders. What that means is that they are responsible to their shareholders for making good business decisions, which means making profit. Mm-hmm. Now, for a private company... Uh, the capital investment that's necessary because of long-term contracts of at least 15, 20 years, or even 20 to 30 years, 
uh, we're in a situation where if there's going to be a transition in the next 10 to 15 years, then these companies allegedly, supposedly, the business environment tells them, which is created by the governments, tells them you're going to be out of business in 15 years or 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, in such a situation, it would be a rather poor business decision for any company to make any investment where they require 20 years of production and sale in order to justify the investment on a commercial basis. And moreover, they would be they would be responsible and liable in the courts. They could be sued by their shareholders for making poor business decisions because under law, they are responsible, that's what fiduciary responsibility means to their shareholders, for making good business decisions. Uh, and then also the company directors could be uh, pursued in court. They could be sued also in their personal uh, uh, qualities by their shareholders for making bad business decisions. So you can see how uh, it becomes problematic. Now, the other elephant in the room, when one looks at Europe, is that, and pipelines, is that in the last six months of 2019, it was before uh, all of the most recent uh, tumultuous and traumatic events that we've lived through, the last six months of 2019, there were policy decisions adopted by the European Investment Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the World Bank and the IMF saying that they will no longer underwrite such projects. And this was at the behest of green lobbyists, a long multi-year lobbying campaign of green lobbyists funded by Russia. Mm -hmm. Now, these banks don't lend the money to build the pipelines, but the large banks which do lend the money, depend on these international financial institutions, IFIs, as they're called, depends on the IFIs to sort of put a stamp of approval on it. You know, this looks doable. We, it's, it's ecologically uh, uh, respectable. Civil society has been consulted and anyone who's going to be hurt, uh, you know, there are, there are arrangements for their compensation. They put a stamp of approval on it. This stamp of approval is also necessary for insurance companies to insure the loans and to insure the constructions of the pipelines. Nothing happens without insurance. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's the case, which it is, that your major internet, your major IFIs have adopted policies at the board level saying we're not going to put any more stamps of approval on any more pipeline projects you can imagine it's come to a, it's come to a screeching halt but if we go back to the governments now at the point where they're scrambling to to, to find sources of energy um would that would that not change i mean would they not well you're saying now that europe is making decisions that went against initial policies of switching in a you know 10 to 15 years they're going back on what they were um what they were uh, uh saying why isn't you know why aren't major countries like france or germany perhaps doing more or uh to to to, uh, to, to securing uh energy into europe from well gas they, and oil they haven't gone back on it you know as a policy there may be some talk about it but uh, the policies are, themselves are still in place, and those are 
the legal infrastructure that sets the rules of the game that everyone has to play by. Uh, so uh, you talk about why France and Germany. Well, you know, now it's uh, a kind of uh, everyone, you know, save yourself uh, and devil take the hindmost. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, Poland is the one country uh, that has no problems because they have for, for the last five years set up uh, diversity, diversity of energy uh, supplies. Uh, there's something called the Baltic pipe, which comes from Norway through Denmark under the sea to Poland. Uh, they have degasification uh, terminals. The technical term is an FSRU uh, floating, uh, a floating uh, unit actually floats in the sea that uh, tankers can dock at and they unload their liquefied gas and it's regasified and then put into the country's pipeline system. Uh, every, every country has its own problems. And we see already that German industry, uh, a lot of, a lot of old, old st standard and, and middle-class companies, they're folding because they can't survive because mm -hmm. they can't pay for their energy. Companies that have been around for decades, they're closing down. If, um, if from what you're saying, nearly half of energy uh, of Europe's energy supply is cut off, what uh, what alternatives exist for the EU, like in the in in the short term, without Russia? In the short term, the only alternatives are the spot market and liquefied natural gas. Um, which is underway. Uh, there's a good deal of LNG coming from the East Mediterranean. Uh, there are gasification, I'm sorry, liquefaction plants off the coast and on the coast of Egypt, which take gas from Israeli offshore deposits and liquefy it and send it to Greece send it to Italy. But that's just stopgap. Uh, that doesn't fill the hole that's left by uh, the absence mm -hmm. of Russian energy, uh, which includes oil. You know, just uh, last week, an agreement was reached. Uh, Kazakhstan, Mm -hmm. which in Central Asia, which is a, a big oil and gas producer, uh, is going to send oil to Europe through the Russian pipeline system. This has been approved because Europe needs it so bad because there are things that you get from oil that you can't get from anything else. Uh, the um, plastics in the computers that we are using come from oil. Mm -hmm. uh, the list goes on. There are dozens and dozens of products uh, that all sorts of lubrication uh, fluids that are necessary for all kinds of machines to work. Uh, it's mind-boggling when you sit down 
and look at the uh, the what they call the uh, the petroleum tree, which is all the products that come from different stages of refining of different qualities and grades of oil, because not all oil is the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fifty years ago, there were only three or four products. Seventy years ago, today there are nearly a hundred, nearly a hundred, from uh, wax for your car, you know, to um, to the plastic in your sneakers, everything. Anyway, I'm going on and on, but uh, I'll stop there. I'll just say that that uh, it's non-substitutable is the technical economic term. People don't realize how many non-energy products depend on oil uh, and its derivatives uh, for manufacture. I want to get back to what you just referred to, energy coming in from uh, Eastern uh, uh, countries. Uh, specifically in Greece, there has been for the for numerous years uh, this initiative in bringing in oil from the Middle East through Cyprus, uh, the East Med uh, pipeline. How feasible is this? I mean, we're all following the developments in Eastern Mediterranean, the conflicts that exist specifically around that project. Um, how feasible is this uh, and how much of an impact can it make uh, for the future of uh, European energy security? Uh, well, if you're speaking about the East Med pipeline, that's a natural gas pipeline. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sorry to say, uh, it's not going to happen. It was never going to happen. Uh, and it won't happen. Uh, and the EU, the European Commission has basically said it's not going to happen. Everyone's moved on. Uh, just background for people who are listening. Uh, there are uh, offshore deposits uh offshore of israel and offshore of cyprus and uh because they share a maritime boundary some of these are the same deposits uh or closely related and the idea was uh, that uh and there are other also other offshore deposits of israel uh, and the idea was to build a pipeline that would uh cross if i'm not mistaken also crete and it would go to italy now the European Union has kept that alive for years, not alive, on life support for years with a few million euros every few years to conduct studies. To conduct studies. The physical facts are that this pipeline would be the longest, deepest uh, maritime oil pipeline, uh, I'm sorry, gas pipeline in the history of the in- industry. And when it's all unpacked it's just not economically feasible you cannot it, it, it's these are the conclusions of the studies you which they keep doing every couple of years uh, you cannot build it and make an economic profit which is the criterion for building it uh for if, if a private company is going to build it and the eu can't build it because it doesn't build pipelines it just mm-hmm. doesn't the eu um as 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 meaning the Brussels bureaucracy, they don't build pipelines. Countries and national companies and private companies build pipelines, and they like to make profits or at least break even, and they can't with the East Med pipeline. So Israel uh, has uh, gone elsewhere. Uh, it's uh, with its exports. It's exporting uh, to uh, Lebanon. It's exporting to Egypt for the liquefaction that we talked about. Uh, 
I'm not sure that the Cypriot gas has really gone anywhere yet. Uh, of course, there are other reasons for that uh, that are uh, not related to their economic uh, situation, but more to a geopolitical situation. Uh, so I'm you know, sorry to say to all my Greek friends that uh, the East Med pipeline isn't going to be built now, mm -hmm. later, or ever. Interesting. Uh, so so the, the alternative now it seems to be getting uh, energy from the East. You mentioned Kazakhstan. That obviously has to come either through Russia into Europe or through Turkey. Uh, and that brings us to sort of a, 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 a this political fork on the road where you have Europe kind of going into one direction, specifically with what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. And on the other hand, well, they depend heavily on having these sources of energy, this, this gas or oil coming in from these countries that ultimately have to go either through Russia or through Turkey. How is that seen? And I know we're going into more of a political thing now, but I, I, ultimately, you know, they, they have their cards in the game as well. Well, it, it won't go through Russia. There's a pipeline through Turkey. The Europeans have no problem in principle with receiving gas that transits Turkey. Mm -hmm. uh, you may know that there is something called the TANAP pipeline, which is the Turkish initials for the Trans-Anatolian Natural Gas Pipeline, which is actually owned and operated by Azerbaijan, mm -hmm. uh, which has large deposits of oil and gas in its offshore and uh, the whole successful project of the European Union called the Southern Gas Corridor uh, is designed for uh, Caspian region energy. It goes from, uh, from the offshore to Baku, which is the capital. It takes, goes through Georgia, takes a left, uh, goes down into Turkey, takes a right all the way across Turkey. And some contracts have recently been signed for that for some of that gas to go to uh, Balkan countries because they have rather low uh, requirements. You know, uh, one or three billion cubic meters per year here and there. And then, as I'm sure you know, it uh, goes uh, across Greece and Albania and underneath the uh, sea and ends on the heel of the boot of Italy. That's uh, the TAP, the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline. So you have the whole Southern Corridor, which is the South Caucasus Pipeline, the Trans-Anatolian Pipeline, TANAP, and then the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline, which includes the segment across Greece. And that has um, not actually met its potential uh, in terms of transit. The reason for that is that these, and I'm talking about even 10, 15 years ago and ramping up to the present, uh, the pipeline is not filled. The pipeline with uh, a little additional engineering work, uh, which does not require building new pipeline, could take 23, 27, up to 31 BCM. Why? Billion cubic meters of gas per year. BCMY. Uh, and uh, at present, it takes only, uh, well, a little more than half that. And the reason is that these companies that made the investments in Azerbaijan's offshore, uh, BP, Total, you know, you'll recognize all the names, uh, they uh, have a choice. They have a global portfolio of possible investments. 
and they choose the best ones. The Azerbe- the ones in Azerbaijan are very good. In fact, there's a there's a, a deposit called Shahdadiz, which they're just they have finished the second phase of expansion, and gas is going to be coming from there. But much of that is going to be used domestically in Azerbaijan because they have domestic demand, and other of it is going to be is being sold as it has already been done in the past to Turkey. So some of that so that gas gets off taken as we say uh before it gets to Europe so that what arrives in Europe isn't as much as could be because the companies took the investment decision that other possibilities Azerbaijan was good but others were better was their decision. Right. Now uh, I don't know if you want to talk about Turkmenistan. That's mm-hmm. a that's an even more uh, uh, further flung sort of thing. Uh, there's been uh, on the uh, drawing boards for oh my goodness, 25 years, the so-called TCGP Trans-Caspian Gas Pipeline, someone sometimes called the TCP, which would go from uh, the coast of Turkmenistan under the Caspian Sea to Baku and from Baku it would the gas would go where the where the gas goes because the, the the pipelines are already there for mm-hmm. ga- once it gets to Baku it's like your home free well you have you still have to pay for it but your home free so to speak without any uh, significant additional investment required for transit uh the sticking point there has been that western diplomacy has never satisfied Turkmen demands. Turkmenistan wants to sell 31 billion cubic meters a year. And Turkmenistan has a policy which is uh, very special. They say, we will sell our gas at our border, and then it's up to you what you do with it. So they're not going to own downstream pipelines like Azerbaijan does. They're not going to be concerned with marketing. You know, that's your business. And the Europeans, as well as the Americans, have, I must say, taken always a rather Orientalist view of all of, of Azerbaijan, in fact, as well as Turkmenistan. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, you can see how uh, Beri Mohamedov, who's the president, is treated in the Western press. He's treated as kind of a joke. Well, you know, he's got a different kind of political system, you know, and it was inherited from the Soviet Union and all that. But I mean, it's not even taken seriously. He becomes a joke. So so this is what I mean by by Orientalist, like, and also imposing or projecting, you know, Western values and, and so on. So... So there happened to be two, there happened to be rigs, gas rigs offshore in Azerbaijan that exploit the resources there. There are also gas rigs from of Turkmenistan offshore from Turkmenistan. And so the Europeans, first the Americans and the Europeans had the bright idea. Well, we don't need to build a whole pipeline, although it's not a big, it's not a long pipeline. It's only 300 kilometers and it's easy to do because mm-hmm. it's only 150 meters deep. Uh, from uh, 
Turkmenistan to Azerbaijan. We can just connect the two rigs, the Turkmen rigs and the Azerbaijani rigs. And that's only like, you know, 80 or 100 kilometers. We can do it cheap and uh, we can get eight or 10, eight or 10 maximum billion cubic meters a year. Turkmenistan says no. They've said no. They've said they've been consistent for 25 years and they still aren't taken seriously. Their, their, their bottom line, which is understandable, is basically if we sell gas to Europe, Russia won't like it. We're not going to make Russia angry for 8 DCM a year. If we're going to make Russia angry, it's got to be worth something to us, like 30. And that's where it's been. You know, the last, uh, just last year, was the last attempt by an American uh, group headed by a former American diplomat to Turkmenistan to try to build what they call the uh, the sh the short. It's not it's not really Transcaspian. The short pipeline between the rigs. They ran up against the same the same the same stumbling block, you know. Uh, and so Turkmenistan, unless uh, unless a Deus Ex Machina comes and 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 builds the pipeline which is not expensive because the gas comes from eastern turkmenistan but the the infrastructure to take that gas from eastern turkmenistan to the turkmenistan border or coast of ukraine of, of caspian sea that's already there turkmenistan built that themselves like a dozen years ago they're ready to go and they have more gas than they can sell they sell most of their gas to China. I'll tell you, if China quadrupled their purchases from Turkmenistan, which they're not going to do, Turkmenistan would still have more gas right. to supply Europe for 50 years. So anyway, that's the situation there. You know, it, obviously there's politics in here, but what's more interesting for me is to just put that aside for now and just look at exactly what we're talking about now. Um, uh, energy security in a in a continent that has with one conflict put itself in, 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 in you know put put a huge stumbling block uh in front of it well i have to say one it wasn't just the conflict it wasn't just nord stream mm -hmm. we have to say that the current crisis is driven in the first place by green policies pushed by germany succumbing to green lobbyists funded by russia and which germany used the structure of the european union to impose on the rest of europe by regulatory norms why because germany is making a lot of the green technology in china mm -hmm. and also in Germany, but a lot of investment in China. And this is their new industrial policy. They, they've been selling the green technology to other EU countries. German industrial policy used to depend on the Mittelstand. You know, your solid, you know, family, not large, but based family-based industrial companies that made complicated machinery, even, you know, dishwa from dishwashers to industrial machinery. You know, that was the solid German, what they call the Mittelstand. That doesn't exist anymore for a number of reasons. Uh, and uh, so the new industrial policy that Germany decided 50, 
some time ago was, well, we can't export that stuff anymore. We will export green technology. And so, of course, they motivated their own adoption of green energy norms. And through the mechanism of the European Union, in concert with other green groups, lobbies in other EU countries, you know, they got the European Parliament to pass resolutions, and then they influenced the European Commission, which has like seven-year plans for investment. Uh, and um, and that's that's the the driving force. If had the European Union continued along the line of a petroleum, which means oil and gas uh, based investments, rather than sinking so much uh, money into green energy, which produces much less energy, much more expensively. If they hadn't done that, they wouldn't. They literally wouldn't have this problem now. I want to that's ask why. A... That's why there's a shortfall, not just because of Nord Stream and Russian mm -hmm. gas, but because they can't pick up the slack with green, and they they never would be able to. The question I have, and you mentioned it twice, and I and thank God you did because you reminded me of the question because you mentioned that this happened primarily because of Russian backed uh, green lobbies. Why would Russia push that agenda when it knows that it's you know, at least 15, 10, 10, 15 years ago, uh, the relationship it had was one based through oil and gas? Well, you see, the uh, Russian energy people are uh, very realistic and they know uh, that green energy is more expensive, less productive, less reliable and will uh, wear out sooner than oil and gas and its pipelines. So they were pushing uh, the green energy uh, through their lobby groups. And the lobby groups, by the way, include Western politicians. I'm not just saying it's civil society or NGOs. It's you know also, Western, also politicians in Western Europe. Uh, they were pushing that uh, in the expectation that uh, green energy would fail in the realistic expectation, in fact, as the present day shows, that green energy would fail to meet uh, everything that it was advertised to do, and that this would, that this failure of green energy would increase European dependence on uh, Russian gas uh, and Russian oil. And indeed, uh, one of the uh, American moves that uh, facilitated the uh, invasion of Ukraine and which uh, convinced, helped to convince further the Russians that they were right in their strategy was in May 2021, when uh, the Biden administration lifted sanctions from Nord Stream 2, which uh, the Trump administration following uh, Senate and House legislation had uh, imposed. This legislation, as it always does, uh, includes the proviso, if the president determines that it's in the U.S. national security interest uh, not to do what we are saying, what we are legislating should be done, then uh, he can waive uh, the sanctions. Uh, Trump never, Trump didn't do that. Biden did that. Uh, that allowed uh, Russia to continue to uh, complete 
the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Remember, there are two Nord Stream pipelines. One of them has been in operation for over 10 years. The second one was going to be in operation. They're huge. They were huge. 55 billion cubic meters per year each mm-hmm. for Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. And those pipelines uh, came onshore in Germany. And the advantage for Germany in this deal, aside from uh, Schroeder uh, living the rest of his life in St. Petersburg as a bosom buddy of Putin, which is well known and well photographed, uh, that Germany would become, did become, the sole distributor of Russian gas in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so this was what this is what was in it for Germany, also in particular. So. Russia, Russian politicians and energy people never expected that Europe would do what they did and cut off the gas because nothing happened when Russia invaded Georgia. Nothing happened when Russia stayed in Moldova in the late in the early 1990s. The old Soviet Russian troops are still in Moldova, which is a small country that is sandwiched between Ukraine and Romania. Uh, nothing happened. When they invaded Georgia in 2008, nothing happened when they invaded Ukraine in 2014. Why should anything happen if they reinvade Ukraine in 2022? They had no expectation that uh, Europe would choose for political reasons to overcome not to overcome but to and and decide against its economic interests to uh to cut off the the gas and and i note as a footnote that germany and europe have been importing russian gas for 50 years this started well 40 years this started in the 1980s uh the first pipelines uh from uh russia and there was a big uh, brouhaha that uh, some people who are old enough may or may not remember about gas turbines uh, being sold to Russia uh, by uh, German companies that uh, Americans didn't like. It was against American law. There was a question of the extraterritorial extraterritoriality of law. How can American law apply to a commercial transaction between Germany and Russia, etc., Germany and the Soviet Union, etc., etc., etc.? That's a little, you know, ancient history. But uh, it's it didn't just start the the German and the European dependence on Russian gas. It goes back well forty years to the nineteen eighties, uh, and and given the lack of Western response to previous Russian post-Cold War, Russian uh, occupations of sovereign others of sovereign nations' territories. They had no idea. They counted on Europe caving and taking all the gas from Nord Stream 1 and all the gas from Nord Stream 2. And this would also establish further a separation, a geopolitical and a geoeconomic separation between Europe and the United States. Europe would become even more, would become inextricably dependent on Russian gas if that had happened. So, so very much surprised them. And that's why they backed, to come back to your question, that's why they backed the Green Lobby, because they knew it would not be as productive as oil and gas 
uh, and that this would actually, in the end, increase European dependence on Russia, Russian oil and gas. Interesting. Uh, since we're since we're talking about Russia, I, I want to go back a couple of months when we heard in the news that Russia had plans on collaborating with Turkey uh, and making Turkey into this huge energy hub. Um, is that uh, just another way for uh, Russia to get its oil and energy into Europe through Turkey? And now, is potential uh, is there potential for something like this? Turkey is not going to be an energy hub uh, without boring listeners with the technical details of what constitutes an energy hub, let me just say that none of those elements is present in the Turkish situation. Uh, so it's not going to be an energy hub. So you don't, Whether, think, you don't think there's any feasibility in that quote-unquote agreement that they made? Not for Turkey to be an energy hub. Yeah. Uh, whether Russian energy reaches Europe via Turkey is a different question. Mm -hmm. What well, the reason the energy hub came up also is that Erdogan is standing for re-election in a few months, and this is also part of his, this is a favor. This is a favor that the Russians did to Erdogan to give him another electoral platform talking point mm -hmm. that Turkey is, you know, even more important than it has been. It's becoming an energy superpower. Right. Europe's going to depend on Turkey. These are the talking points. I'm not saying it's the case. These are the talking points that they made a gift to Erdogan for his re-election campaign. Interesting. So you don't see any feasibility with that. The, is that because Turkey doesn't have the capabilities of becoming an energy hub or what's missing in the formula? Oh, you don't have a uh, multiple uh, sources of energy. You don't have a price making mechanism, uh, and you don't have bidders who, to whom will be dispatched, uh, different for different amounts and forms of energy. Uh, energy hub is, is a very, uh, it's, it's a complex technical, uh, financial and in an industrial undertaking. It's not just uh, a crossroads of pipelines. A crossroads of pipelines does not an energy hub make. Mm -hmm. Is there an give an example of an existing energy hub so that people can get their, their wrap their, their their head around what, something that might exist already that is considered an energy hub? Well, the best known is the is the so called Henry Hub in uh, the southern United States. I forget, but I think it's Oklahoma. I'm not. I don't remember exactly where. Uh, Yes, a bunch of pipelines come together, but you have a whole market mechanism. People make uh, make make bids. Uh, there are dispatchers. It's it's it's. I think for this interview, it's really too complicated to go mm -hmm. into. Yeah, no, uh, just so but, that we can compare a little bit in contrast. Yeah, uh, but it's it's uh, it's a whole cooperative enterprise amongst amongst buyers, sellers, engineers technicians, politicians. So so what is the future like in Europe? And I want to wrap it up. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but what, what, are, we, what are we looking out for now in Europe? I mean, is there any potential for Europe to develop its own sustainable uh, energy supply? And if so, where? By sustainable, by sustainable I, I'm, I'm, I am interpreting sustainable to mean reliable. Reliable, yes. Uh, the answer is not before the end of the decade and maybe afterwards if they're lucky. So we're looking at a much more complicated future for Europe 
oh than, yeah than, than, than we're than, than we're being told yes for example you know uh there have been headlines written uh over the past months about how uh, Europe has successfully decreased its energy demand. It's not it, it's it's not as reliant on Russian gas as it used to be. Uh, the shortfall is less than it than than it was you know eight months ago because Europe has reduced its energy demand. Well, you have to ask how has it reduced its energy demand? It hasn't introduced within eight months a whole slew of energy conservation measures. No, uh, you have industries shutting down. You have uh, people whose smart thermostats are controlled centrally by European uh, regulatory uh, norm, and they decide, and and the, and the central uh, decides in Austria or wherever. No, uh, this winter you can put on a sweater, and we'll only let you get up to seventeen degrees in your house, seventeen Celsius in your house. Uh, which is uh, roughly about 60 Fahrenheit. It's in the low 60s Fahrenheit. Uh, so, so that's that's the situation, and it's not going to change because also once an in, once inter, once a firm shuts down, once industry shut down, you can't you know flick a switch and turn it back on. If an ind, if if a company closes down, that's Human resources, the people who have worked together for so long, they scatter to different places, they get different jobs. Uh, it, there, there's a whole lot that is uh, being lost. And it's not just, I, we focus on Germany because it's such an important you know, country and it's the best or, if you want, worst example uh, of, of the situation. But it's, it's only an example. Uh, rare is the country in Europe that does not have... Uh, many of these same problems if not to the same degree exactly that's very interesting uh robert i want to thank you for all the knowledge that you've given to our viewers and to our listeners i want to invite everyone to go uh to strategyinternational.org for any additional information follow us on all social media platforms on youtube and on all audio platforms for other interviews and episodes that we've done on this podcast um robert once again thank you so much for your time really appreciate it Marvelous. Well, thank you for the great questions. I had a lot of uh, fun, and I hope that uh, people who are watching can uh, can learn something and and uh, follow uh, Strategy International. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Robert M. Cutler. Uh, no one string like that, and uh, and I I do a lot of uh, post a lot on energy, and of course uh, my team, my uh, Strategy International, also. Uh, focuses a lot on energy so um hope to uh hope to, hope to see more people there thank you again and for all the information it's going to be this in the description below this episode thanks again everyone and we'll see you all again on the next episode take care thank you for listening to the strategy international podcast produced by pod mtl for strategy international feel free to subscribe rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, 
or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.